Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. So at this point, now I'm starting to feel like this this blackness coming, right? And I'm watching the blood, and something inside me, that's when I felt the fear. That you might not come back. There's no might in this moment. You don't think in terms of might. It's very interesting. You get so clear. You get, there's no might. There's like flashes that went through my head. Flashes of a woman I love dearly that's now with me. Something in the back of my head going, what a shitty, messy way to go. And then flashes of just fear and horror. And then I remember the anesthesiologist put the oxygen mask on my, and I ripped it off because I just had to get it out. And I looked at her and I like said, look, I'm scared. I'm scared. And that's all I could say. And she held my hand. And it was so soft. And something we said, okay. Something in you almost at that point stops fighting. And like, this is it. This is the last thing I'll have seen. I felt like I fell backwards into like a dark ocean. And then they put the mask on me and then I disappeared. Once again, my good, close friend, Kamal Ravikant, on the podcast. James, this time it's really good to be here. I, I am glad you're here too. And when people hear the story, why we're both glad you're here, it's going to be stunning and we'll we'll talk about it. But also, how many times have you been on the podcast? Have you been on, I was been on, on at least of, once a year for the past six no, years? No, no, no. I was on, I think, one of your very first when you yeah. first started. It was actually a Skype one that we did when I was in San Francisco. Then I've been here um, when we did when I went to Tibet, uh, Nepal, and studied with uh, Tibetan mystic uh, monks. That was just recently. Um, that was recently. I was there here once for the novel Rebirth when it came out, and then uh, this. Live your truth too. Yeah, that was the very first one. That was the one we did over Skype way back in oh, the day. Oh, we didn't do uh, Love Yourself. Maybe we kind of combine those no, two. In one? No, because Love Yourself already been out. And I feel, was doing I feel like we've just done some random ones too. No. No. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, this this will be almost like in the category of random ones, but it's about a very important event that happened to you. I'll just say it real quickly. You almost, you came within minutes of death. If you didn't have, if you as you told me, um, if you hadn't already been sitting in a hospital, you would have died. Like if you had been 
in a cab, which could have just as easily have happened, like in terms of probabilities, mm -hmm. you could have easily been in a cab at that moment. Or you, home, or even in the emergency department, uh, given the nature of what happened, uh, several doctors on their own later on told me because they became friends that, that this would have been a one-way ticket. How, how from, so, so we'll get into the, the, how it all started and why you were dealing with this in the first place, but just right at that moment, the way you described it to me, is that blood, like an artery ripped, and we'll describe why in a little bit, but an artery ripped and the, so much blood was coming out, it like ripped through the skin and it was like almost like a geyser of blood ab above you. Just real quickly, how, from that moment, if you had not been treated, how long would it have taken for you to die? I don't know, um, but I've never seen that level of panic in a hospital. And I was inside it like a recover, I was recovering from a surgery the night before. And the level of panic and mayhem and screaming and yelling and someone like, it was insane. I mean, they, um, it was pretty close because one, one surgeon told me he's never seen someone rush to an OR that fast. And normally there's a procedure. He said, this was literally saving life. We need, had to get you in the OR. Did, did you black out or did they put you out before they? No, I was awake watching blood spray out of me like a, like a Yellowstone, but it wasn't stopping. Okay, so let's let's back up a minute. I remember a week or so earlier, we were talking on the phone and you mentioned you were going to go into this hospital to solve an old injury and and uh, it was it, you were choosing to have this surgery. It was an elective surgery and you found, as you put it, the best doctor in the world or one of the best doctors in the world. And I said, I even said to you, Kamal, just, I don't like going into hospitals. <laughs> you know, people die in hospitals any surgery is dangerous. I don't care how good the doctor is. Just make sure you're making the right I remember that. decision. And and you were like, oh, no, don't worry. Uh, I'll be in and out of there. This is doctors, the the best. And I offered to visit and you said, no, no, no. I'm just, I'm going to get out of the hospital right away. And then the next, and then the next thing I hear, you, you, you almost died, <laughs> not during the surgery, but in the events afterwards. So, so first off, uh, this was an elective surgery. You didn't have to have it. Why'd you decide to get the surgery? What roughly, what was the it's surgery? It's an old athletic injury that I had. And I, you know, it was like, I take such good care of myself. I'm at a place in my life where I was like, look, I should not have to deal with any issues. I, I, I just fundamentally take such great care of myself. And I was tired of dealing with the, with this injury issue. It was like a pain, a constant pain. No, or? I was having blood flow issues and so forth. Cause it was like injury to a blood vessel and they had gotten fused together and so, but it's to get to it is very complicated to fix it. Um, I tried other things, it didn't work. And then I, you know, I have this fundamental belief that every problem is solvable. No matter what you work your way through, you'll figure out a way to, to solve it. And I eventually did. And I found a guy in New York actually. And this surgery actually required a couple of surgeons because it was very complicated, right? But it was very nuanced and thorough. And it was a five hour surgery, it was very intense. And so they had to unfuse these, unfuse, reroute, reroute arteries. Yeah, starting starting from the abdomen, going all the way through the groin. You know, just the whole area is there's there's all these rich arteries, and and move some, and you know, like it's not like I have an issue with my blood vessels. It was literally, it was what it turns out was an issue from an injury. It was some injury that I honestly don't even remember, but it was all the hallmarks of an injury. Um, so I went in to get that done, and. You know, it's the surgeon, uh, the chief surgeon. He would come by my room every day. I was, well, 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 how did you? 
Why did you decide to get it? I mean, again, mm. you, you said you, you, you wanted to solve this problem, but were there other circumstances like um, this, you became aware of this doctor? Like what, what? Yeah, it was just like, I found a solution and it was like, well, why the hell not? Get it done. Just be, just be fully optimized, you know, just have everything working. But again, like, Given no, that, I didn't need to have it. Given yeah. given that there are statistics that suggest that no matter how the, good the doctor is, surgery is a risk. You're being there's there's several layers of risk, right? You're going to be p- put under an anesthetic, which people die from that or or suffer damage from that. You're going to be cut open, which we think is trivial because it's done every day, millions of times in in hospitals. But you know. You're gonna be a knife's gonna be cut, oh, cutting you open. No, there, it was gonna be more than cutting me open. It was, it was pretty involved, and it was something I thought about. And it was something that it's an injury that had been bothering me and getting in my way of living fully. And it was like I just want to live fully. But you know? but but do you feel like, um, you know, and I don't know what the uh, issues are, but you know, I've known you for a long time. You live a very full life. You very uh, nothing seems to to hold you back, and. Um, do you think one way to solve the problem could have been more, you know, mental than physical since this was elective? Um, when it comes to mental, I've, I rock the world. So, I mean, like I'm pretty, I mean, like really, if anyone works on his mental self, it's me. Like I have a level of mental discipline that, it, that I've found rare. Uh, so it wasn't, it was, I, I've done the mental work. Um, then it was a matter of what's next. I think I just kind of was frustrated and it was getting in the way of my living, living life how I wanted to live. And I found a solution. And you know, in those moments, you don't think every surgery has risk, but you don't think of yourself under being the risk factor. If you look statistically, the odds are really low. And, you know, that surgeon actually told me, uh, he, he would come to visit me in the mornings and he was like, he actually was very kind. He said, you know, I wake up every morning thinking of you. You're the first thought I have because I just so badly want you to get better. Because he was, um, and he said, you know, like some of the residents, because uh, it's a teaching hospital, really shook up. And he said he had to sit, pull them aside and explain to them, like, look, you go to medical school and you, you learn physiology and anatomy and you cut up, open a body and blood vessels and that's a human anatomy. But he said, you know, there's like six or seven billion people in the world and I'll tell you what, every single one of them is different. No matter how much anatomy you learn, every single person somehow reacts differently and you just never know. And you happen to be one of the outliers that whatever happened, happened. And, you know, it was like he had to actually sit some of the residents down who were shaken and, like, explain to them that way. You mean after? After the, what happened because they were there. I remember one actually, like, his hands on me, like, trying to sp- slow down the spray of blood. I was gushing. I was gushing so, blood on everyone. So so, so, so you had the surgery. It was this five- or six-hour surgery. And it was and a complete success. Complete success. You're in your hospital room. You wake up after the surgery. What's... I've never had a surgery where I was put out. Like, what? What's the first so thing? So you you don't wake up in a room. You wake up in a ward where they have many patients. And I had a nurse assigned to me. And this is the only negative experience, uh, negative thought I have about the whole experience, honestly. Because uh, the surgeon came. He said, "Wow, you're doing so well. We're going to discharge in a couple of hours. Like you're doing gangbusters." And um, she said, "You should get." She said, "You need to get up and walk around." And I started to walk around, and something in me just felt like all of a sudden, like something broke. And it started to hurt. And I remember saying to her, look, I need something for pain. I need something for pain. And she just poo-pooed it. Or, or can, can I ask, because um, I, again, I'm curious because yeah. I've never been through anything like this and I want to know for my own self if this happens. Obviously, obviously, the way you just said it and even the expression on your face, it wasn't just that you were having 
some pain relating to no, post-surgery. Felt it felt, something it felt like something, something was wrong. Like that's a different type of feeling than just soreness it's or like, pain. It comes out of nowhere. It's like if you get hit by a bat, you feel it, you know it. There's no doubting. It was like literally like I got hit by a bat in my abdomen. So, uh, so, groin. so what could you really have asked medically? Like could you have said, I need an x-ray right now or I need... I was just... Like would an x-ray have uncovered no, it? No, I think... Uh, but immediately what happened was it started growing bigger down there like because blood started pooling. You know, an artery burst. And an artery bursting is... When you one, were walking around, the artery burst. Yeah. So, and that's so, a one-way street. So, so you so you went from lying down to walking. And I'm sorry, I'm I'm yeah, slowing yeah. you down. I'm just trying to understand. Yeah. You you've been living the story, so you can you you yeah, you yeah, take yeah. the shortcuts, and I'm trying to understand what happened. So you had the surgery. You're, you're lying down. You wake up. Um, nurse suggested you walk around, which is not a bad. She didn't suggestion. suggest it. She was actually pretty forceful about it. And which, which but it's not I a bad suggestion. It's not a bad one because to get out of the hospital, you got to walk your way out, right? So like, I don't blame her for that. Um, but but when something's wrong. How can they check what is wrong? I think what honestly, I really ask for if it happens to me. She re- <laughs> get me all a fucking me. doctor ASAP. But okay, so that was the pain. because the nurse is not going to do anything. So basically, the advice I'm hearing from this is when something feels wrong as opposed to just sore, you 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 need to exaggerate it. You need to actually like really demand the doctor. Yeah, the greasy Cause, wheel. Because the only whatever they're the nurses doing. They're so paperwork dependent there, and also one thing I've learned being an insane pain in the hospital, they're all terrified of giving you more painkillers than not because of this whole opiate epidemic. So, I, but but that's true. But there are even inside the hospital. But 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 at the same time. It's one thing when they're giving you opiates for home, which you could no, abuse no. It's interesting. I experienced that in the hospital, uh, right there, and she, you know, she wouldn't give me because I was like, just give me something for pain right now. She wouldn't. She's like, no, you'll have to wait. You'll have to wait. She was very firm about it, and to the point where I was hurting so bad, I had like sweat and tears streaming down. Like what was it? A sharp pain? It was like literally like you get hit by a truck. Like like it it just shocks you. Like, you know, you have to say your body goes into shock. You're literally in full-on shock. You don't even know what's happening. It's like, but something's inside you is coming apart. Like, so you're like, so were you shaking? Shaking, sweating, like tears. Not Without crying, tears coming out. It's like your body just starts to... And where, like a pinpoint where the pain was. Um, it was all just my lower part of my body because an artery burned ins- inside over there. It's one of the arteries I worked on, actually. Mm-hmm. And... The good news is my blood flow and everything, my pressure is really good. It's just that it's strong. <laughs> it's strong and it, as it should be, except it might have been uh, whatever, you know, surgery, whatever they did in surgery didn't hold. So so, so they, 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 they opened up an artery or they stitched up an artery and... They moved an artery around, a couple of arteries around. And, and so when they move arteries around, they have to stitch them back, yeah, sew them back yeah. up. And one of those stitches didn't hold. Yeah. And when you walked, it it unstitched. Yeah. And uh, was this a stitches that they were going to remove later? No, or, no, these or were permanent I mean, and arteries. You know, like you can't go to remove. Stitches. So, so why, why? Like I would think, since they don't care so much about removing the stitches later, and since it's underneath the skin, they don't care about. It's appearance. deep. Arteries are deep. Yeah. Was, but but they could use very strong material to sew up the artery. What was what was the problem in the stitches? I never asked because at that point you don't care. <laughs> But even now, I'd be curious. You know, I could, but at this point, I only care about getting better. So, okay, yeah. so, you, so, so you wake up, you're walking around, you're in this massive pain. I think maybe the mistake was, not, not that you made mistakes, but I'm just trying the to... The mistake was asking for something for pain rather than saying, give me a doctor. Right. 
Right, because then it put her on the defensive because everyone yeah. asked for pain. They want yeah. opiates. And you could have said, you could have focused on medical Literally, help. Was, I should have been screaming at her. And she just wouldn't even listen to me. Like I was like, and... Um, if you could do it again, what would you do differently? Like in, I literally in, would have screamed for a doctor. Would you have gone to the ground? I would have... Like maybe I would fold to the ground. I would ground. have passed out if I'd got fold to the ground. I remember just standing there trying my best not to pass out. And then I got to my bed and all of a sudden... My stomach expanded, everything expanded because it was pooling with blood. It, did she see that? Because I was bleeding out. And I was showing it to her. And she was like, oh, I'll, I'll, I've paged a doctor. I paged a doctor. I'm like, there's a difference between paging a doctor and getting a doctor right away. And that's where I think my, and I talked to the surgeon about this afterwards. I was like, look, I only have one issue. This nurse, when she saw what was happening, she still was very nonchalant and just did a basic page. When you guys, someone should have come and I wouldn't have had to deal with the bursting which is where all the post-op pain has been and which is what almost killed me. Um, but, you know, in some ways I look at it, was there's, that's the negative. The positive could be her making me around, uh, making me walk around and bursting there, maybe stop, save me from it bursting in the Uber ride two hours later, which would have killed me. Yeah, because maybe... So you never know. Maybe like if you hadn't walked around then, if you had waited a half hour, maybe it would have yeah. been a little bit more solid so yeah. you would have made it out the door. Two hours later, burst in the Uber and you're, um, you're gone. And so, so, so again, though, there's some, some missing gap of knowledge, which is understandable, right? It's like the doctor said to the residents, everybody's different, every surgery is different, but there was a, not necessarily a passiveness, but you had two choices. You said you were in pain, you were saying what was happening, so you, so, so in pain you have two choices, get a painkiller or get a solution, the doctor. Yeah, my it, mistake was asking for something for pain. And were you feeling uh, uh, shy about asking for the doctor? Like, I think I no, would no, feel no, shy no. about asking for a no, doctor. No, no, but it was like, I, f I figured they were trained well enough uh, that they would know what to do. That, uh, that might have been a mistake. Not, not yeah. that they're not trained, but it's just that, like the doctor said to his residents, everybody's, every situation yeah. is different. Maybe she had seen this situation before and she just saw it with people who needed painkillers. So yeah. you, don't, you don't really know what her yeah, catalog you can't and experience really, like, is. Yeah, that's one of the things I've been avoiding is trying to put blame on her, but I'm just trying to do what the situation is and what the outcome was and what the outcome could have been. Maybe she saved my life by, by being an ass. <laughs> but, but, I, but I think in, in terms of like your future experience... And my and future, experience, your future experience, experience of the anything, listeners. Just immediately demand a doctor. The nurses can't, they're literally every decision they make, they have to, there's so much paperwork. I, like even when I was being wheeled into the OR for emergency surgery, I'm, I'm like doing my best not to pass out. There's blood spraying out of me, right? And they're making me sign paperwork for blood transfusion. Do you want to blood, are you okay with blood transfusion? And while blood spraying out of me, yes, I am. <laughs> we, <laughs> you know? we, still, we still have to uh, back up a second, but what if you had didn't, what if you didn't, what if you had blacked out then? What if you didn't sign that uh, document? I don't know, because there are certain religious groups that are against blood transfusions. So I don't know what their policy there is. Um, but that has surgery... Keep be in mind twelve hours before we had before the surgery. I signed. I signed. Yes, I want. If in case, give me a blood transfusion. So I'm assuming they would have used that. But they were making me sign paperwork, <laughs> even as I'm bleeding to death. You know. So so okay. The blood's pooling. She sees it. The acts nonchalant, uh, uh, yeah. giving her the benefit of the doubt. Maybe she has seen, um, you know, uh, swelling, bruising whatever, like that yeah. before, or or whatever. Um, but swelling seems odd because that means something's happening yeah. Yeah. as opposed to bruising, which is which is more normal, I would think, yeah. uh, post-surgery. But anyway, uh, and then what? you're back on the bed. 
what she's not giving you painkillers and she's paged a doctor you're in pain the pain didn't subside once you got back to the bed what happened next then at this point i'm writhing and it's almost like you're 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 in between a stage of awake and blackout where you're like you're you're, you're there's a tunneling happening and then the the scariest things happen i heard the sound and it literally sounds like a hose bursting and I looked down and I'm spraying blood out. So so the blood had pulled up so forcefully, yeah. it broke through the skin? Yeah, it broke through, tunneled, created almost like a tunnel somewhere in the flesh and went through, this is a, that's a, I mean, if you think about it, an artery, like very pressurized system of pipes inside. And an artery is as, as pressurized as it can get. When one breaks, you got a fire hose coming out. But I still don't understand, like, how did the stitching... On, this on, wasn't unravel. even stitching. This was on its own in a place that was no stitching. That's how powerful it was. Like, so why did it happen? Um, it found a space where it just pooled and, and it was coming out so forcefully. Well, Man, just why was it one. coming out forcefully? Like, why why was there this pressure? I feel like... That's because arteries are... If you... Um, arteries are under pressure. I mean, the whole... Right, but like you say, they, they, the pressure goes into pipes that go in and out of the heart... Why did it suddenly go in a different direction? No, no, you don't understand. If the pipes are coming out of the heart, artery blood's flowing out, it's flowing under a certain pressure. If if you create a hole in it, it's going to spray out at that pressure until the, the, the spray slows down. That means uh, blood pressure's falling, 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 and you're dead. But why, why, what, since the surgery was a success, why was there the, the, the pressure to go outwards? as opposed to just continue through the pipe system. Because uh, I think where they did the stitching, it burst. Yeah, that's what I'm asking. So yeah. why the stitching must have been very powerful stitching. Why did that stitching burst? I, that's, you can ask God or you can, I don't think even the surgeon could say why they did their best. I mean, if he had stitched, double stitched it, I'm just making that I up. Mean, if he had done I a mean, barrel that's, stitch. That's <laughs> like for neither here nor there, right? Like all I can look back and say is, you know, they did the work, it was working. And then this was an outlier. Uh, there's no way to tell that, you know, stitches do come apart sometimes, you know, there's nothing you can do. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I had stitches burst again a couple of days later, but these were fortunately external stitches. So, so okay, so uh, pulling and then suddenly the, the stitches in your skin open up from the pressure? No, no, no. This was a, this was the, the pressure from the artery was so strong. It's like, imagine you have inside a fire hose that all of a sudden it's, you have a hose that's fine. All of a sudden it bursts. Now it's just spraying and, and just spraying a particular direction and it's so forceful uh, that it, it just, just like tunnels through and like, and it starts pooling, pooling, pooling and that's stretching the screen out, stretching everything and I'm losing a lot of blood really fast. Your blood is supposed to stay in your, in your cyst. If it's pooling in your body, you're bleeding to death right there internally. And, and it might have been lucky actually that it burst up because that got her attention. Yeah, because if it kept that, pulling and spreading, what could happen? Died. I would have died by the time they probably got our attention. Like, I would have passed out. So, so, um, okay, so it, you heard this hose, like, hissing, and suddenly it's like a geyser of blood. How much blood? Um, well, I wasn't measuring it, but it was a freaking spray hose. It was a pssst, the sound. It was like, it's funny, the writer in me still, like, at the time was, like, capturing details. You know, you know how like as as we turn into stuff to be writers, we always capturing details. I remember thinking that fucking sound <laughs> sounds like a hose, and but there was also this moment of pure horror because how often do you get to see blood? It's only seen in the movies, you know. It was like that scene from Aliens, you know, when he has the, like the the alien come out of his stomach. But here, I was like watching blood come out of my own 
own like own lower abdomen, uh, groin area, and it was like this horror, this, just a just absolute internal horror because you like something in you starts to feel like you you like things are just slowly going like that because you literally uh, the pressure is dropping so fast. They had to get my blood pressure, and you know at that point. A cuff won't work, so they put a line into a different artery because they need real time because it's falling. They need to know, like, geez, how how close is this guy? Um, and you feel it, and then in, that immediately. What do you was, feel? I mean, f- insane pain. Like I don't even know how to describe pain like that. Um, it's like pain, almost like a blackout kind of pain. Were you screaming? At that point, I was. I think I probably was, uh, but more like, more like fucking do something. What were you? <laughs> Um, describe like between the pain and fear were you starting to feel fear as well as pain it wasn't fear it was more horror that's the only way I can describe it as a pure sense of horror just watching yourself bleed out did you, and so fast did you think at that moment or any moments did you think uh oh I might die here no, not at that moment. But when we go to the OR, as you know, I'll slow down. You know, and uh, as we go to the OR, I'll tell you that moment. Um, and that moment is just pure horror. It's like do something. And and and, and so she wakes up from her. Immediately, there's six doctors there in a second. Look, you know, when you need to die, so it's not like oh, I'm paging a doctor. I'll get there. There were literally six. Because I remember they they all wear the surgery surgery doc. They wear different color scrubs, and there were like six of them, and one of them. All of a sudden, gloves on it, and literally like compressing. He's got his hands on where it's spraying to try to just like push the like keep it from like spraying everywhere. So like trying to keep like uh, maybe not all the blood just sprays out. And so sorry, sorry, and I'm, I'm spraying so, blood all over everyone. But, but sorry, I'm so naive on this. If he tried to push it back into your body, could that it's, be bad? It's not even pushed back. I don't know what the, they were just trying. Like okay. that doesn't stop your ble- internal bleeding, right? But That's the at thing. this point, they don't even know what's going on. All right, they're not, and then, um, and then like just complete like mayhem, horror, screaming, yelling, people running around, me signing forms, and they're like, "We're gonna take you back in the OR." You know, the anesthesiologist coming and saying, "I'm taking you back in the OR." I, you know, just asking quick those those questions, and I'm you're in this 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 space between lucid and just horror, lucid and horror, like trying to answer questions about like, "Hey, do you have any?" Um, you know, allergies to this or that. You answer those questions, so you have to use your brain into like something in you is slowly shutting down, like winding down. But maybe also them asking you questions allows you to stay alert. Possibly. So that yeah, could be yeah. part of it is like keep keep him occupied so he's not thinking about the or not focused on screaming or whatever. I don't know. But yeah. but you know, let me ask let me ask you a question. This is the And the keep final. in mind I was the pain was just horrific. But yeah. you know, like before the surgery, I was saying to you, do you do you have an advocate that's going to be there with you? Can I go and be there? I think you mentioned your brother also offered, and you told him no. And you know, it's important to have you know you're being cut open, even for the initial surgery, even if it's like a no brainer, it's the best surgeon. It's important to have an advocate on your side just in case something goes wrong. Why didn't yeah. you not have? An advocate. Because I'm stupid. Uh, that, you know, I feel honestly, that's an easy answer. I mean, look. You're not stupid. I, I can't. I'm stupid for a smart guy sometimes. No, that? but that's, you're not stupid. Okay, like, here's you, the thing. Um, I thought it was going to be very cut cut and dry. I didn't want to bother anyone. 
Um, but nobody would have been bothered. Fair enough. <laughs> and honestly, in that case, you need an advocate who actually knows the system. Because what would an advocate have done that to the nurse? You know? I would have screamed for a doctor. Okay. And All you right. were in pain. So yeah. you couldn't... And, and you enough. had just gotten out of an, an, an anesthetic. So you're groggy. You're absolutely right. So at the very least, you would have had one... The advocate is specifically there to be annoying. No, you're absolutely right. I I screwed up there. Um, you're absolutely right. If someone else had been like basic, like if I saw that happen to someone I love and a nurse was being nonchalant, I would literally grab her by the throat and ha- you know for them and say like, "Look, you're calling a doctor, or I'm taking you out." I remember one time. Um, this was with um, my ex. Her father-in-law was in the hospital. And he was in a medically induced coma and he from cancer treatments and they needed a, bre- a bed in the critical care section. So they were literally trying to convince my ex-mother-in-law, let's pull all the tubes. He's brain dead. Just, we can't really keep him in this bed anymore. Um, it doesn't make any sense for him to be on all the tubes and stuff. Let's just end mm-hmm. this. And she had never been really in a hospital before. She was from a, f- a farm in the in the city at Sloan Kettering. All these doctors telling her to do this, and so she was like, "Um, I don't know, I don't know. Okay, what? I don't know what to do." And so I and I, an advocate, I had to be there and say, "No, mm. she's not brain damaged. She's just in a coma. You could see every every time they tried to wake her from the coma, he would." move around furiously and they thought that was a indication of brain damage and I'm like no if you have a a vacuum tube in your going down your throat and you just suddenly wake up of course you're gonna and he's a huge guy of course you're gonna move around thrash around like anybody yeah, would yeah. so it's like we have no clue like you can't so no this is a very good lesson James mm-hmm. um to have an advocate but also have an advocate who is willing to be vocal and knows a little bit, you know. Um, it can't be can't be manipulated by a system that's. Yeah, and I'm not blaming the system, but there but is a system. It's there a, is a system. Bureauc- it's a very you know one thing I learned being in a hospital is just the level of bureaucracy. It's like it would make the English look like you know, you know, if you ever look at colonial English bureaucracy, which is horrifying, it makes it look like a piece of cake. Hospital bureaucracy is the worst. Yeah, and also they have protocols that you think are normal, but they're not. So for instance, she had a protocol with you. You complained about pain. Her reaction was, page the doctor, I can't give you a painkiller. That was a protocol. Yeah. She's got a script. So so I realized this a year or so ago when my daughter was in the hospital, she was being shafted into a lane that she didn't belong in. And I had to really, it was hard. I had to really take notes, see when doctors were contradicting each other and take her off this protocol she was on. Now, it, well, that wasn't as life-endangering as your situation. Yours, you had to react right away to the protocol you were on. But anyway, okay, now you're, you're being, the doctors are in action. Um, it's, it's, it's literally like the movies. Like, they get that right in the movies. You know, like, literally, mayhem, I mean, sometimes you see mayhem and you think, no, they're better, mayhem. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And 
I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be... VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of, because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access 
to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. What were you seeing on the doctor's faces? Mayhem. But the attending, one of the attendings who was going to be the surgeons working on me, who had just worked on me 12 hours ago, she was very calm. You know, it was her and her residence. How can you tell? She was just calm. She was like, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. Um, Can I ask what what did she say she was going to do? Well, okay. So they wheeled me into the OR. And later I found out this, this is like, this hit the world record in Columbia Presbyterian apparently, which is a huge hospital of getting someone to OR that fast. Um, and they, they needed the doctor who had actually done the work to go in because she knows exactly where those arteries, what was done. You know, that was one of the things. If, even if I got sent to emergency department and I'm bleeding out, they wouldn't know where to go. Which artery was it? Right, because this blood might have yeah, pulled around yeah, until yeah. it found the, yeah, the it would have been too late. Skin. It, it was like really just the luck of the draw that it happened right there before I was discharged, and the doctor who worked on me was available, and they brought her, they they came right, right. If that back. doctor was not there, what would they have done? I'm guessing they would have called her, and she would have told the surgeon exactly. I don't know. But during the surgery, there was all, uh, more than that doctor there. There was there probably residents, there was nurses. Residents, there were, yeah, there were multiple residents. And there were actually two surgeons in the original surgery. It was a very complicated surgery. Um, so it was a backup surgeon just in case. Yeah, but they're, this, they're, they surgery. have their own specialties. Yeah. Right. And so they wheel me in the OR. And I remember like the thing about being wheeled into the OR. And I'm literally like, like, you know, they're rushing me in. They get me back in the OR and they move me to the table. And she comes and she's very, she, I really like her a lot. And I, I saw her a few days ago and I thanked her for this. She just looked at me and she was very calm, hands on the railing where they were putting me in the aura table. And I'm like, and she's like, look, so here's what we're going to do. And I was like, look, Jess, don't just fix this. Make sure that what I came in for is fixed. I don't want to go through this <laughs> just to come out and still dealing with issues. I'm like, just make me better. And she said, okay. I looked her in the eye and she just looked at me in the eye. She's like, okay. And she said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go on your disc. We're going to go to your calf. We're going to take out some veins. We're going to rebuild this whole thing. I was like, great. She's like, there'll be scars. I'm like, I don't care. What, what, was there a danger of, if they're taking veins from the calf, was there a danger of a weakened leg? No. Uh, it turns, I found out later, your, your calves and everything has so much uh, redundancy built in with the circulatory system. 
there's no issues. They do it all the time for all mm-hmm. sorts of things, mainly for heart stuff. This wasn't that, but it's a very, I found later, right? It's a very common thing. You, you, never notice anything for your life. There's all these redundancies, redundancies built in the body, which so, is so amazing. I'm sorry I'm getting like like mechanical, but is the idea is originally you had some, because of this injury, you had some vessels fused together that were being separated. It didn't quite work out because of this bursting. So now they have to take the some of these redundant veins from the calf to, um, to, to again, um, properly unfuse these vessels that and were connected. To, to actually now fuse, now basically create a bridge between the burst vessel to a, to a, help, to a okay. healthy vessel. Because the burst vessel, you can't just sew it up shut. The blood's got to flow. So what they do is they just hook up like a bridge of these really beautiful big thick, big veins, which are like now these big, beautiful Alaska oil pipelines, which is even better than the original procedure, funny enough. Uh, but to do this, procedure was more barbaric. Like I basically have a C-section, you know, they, now the procedure before had been very elegant, right? All sorts of like my, you know, laparoscopic, this hair, now they just went and started slashing. They had to get in, right? So like, I look like I've had this, you know, like, it's like they just had to go in and full in slash and go in okay. and also to get in fast. So, so, so part, uh, one thing that's interesting to me is her, you, you know, you focus on her and her bedside manner. It sounds like she did two things good. It was one is she stayed in a normal conversational voice with you. And the other is she explained to you what they were doing, which whether or not you even understood what she was saying, it kind of probably gave you comfort that this, this person is, is present, presenting themselves in a very competent way. And they're, uh, they're explaining almost step-by-step, step, oh, this is just a, we do this step, this step, this step, and you'll be fine. And you well, felt good. I didn't feel like I was going to be fine because she, I could tell she's been calm and the theologist to my left and all around me is just mayhem. <laughs> you know, you notice the mayhem around you. Literally, like people running the OR, this, that. It's like people shouting at each other. It's What were they shouting? Like what were... I don't remember. I'm, but I'm trying to imagine what was <laughs> They're it? trying to get everything set up really fast because they need to go inside me fast. So like yeah. they're, they're basically gathering all the specific equipment they need, yeah, all yeah. the specific kind of sutures or yeah, whatever. Yeah, this was an OR that literally had just, interesting enough, had just been finished and cleaned because it, and it was ready for the next surgery. So it just happened to be open for a different surgery. I see. The, the so, timing of it was pretty fantastic. And the reason for the question is I'm trying to avoid in my head the shortcut of picturing a movie where yeah, there's yeah. mayhem in the operating yeah. room. I'm trying to picture specifically why, Well, as opposed he, to just doctors running around, get this, get this. It's literally like, because it, was, it wasn't an OR prepped for my kind of surgery. You know, they have, and, and uh, you know, but one, the most interesting part was when she, so when my conversation with her is over and now the anesthesiologist talking and prepping me and still there's that guy with his hands on trying to like keep the blood from spraying everyone, you know, it's spraying on him and had some fun conversations with him a couple of days later. Um, he was one of the residents. And so at this point, now I'm starting to feel like this, this blackness coming, right? And, and I'm watching the blood and something inside me, that's when I felt the fear. That, that you might not come back. It's like, it's not even like, there's no might in this moment. You don't think in terms of might. It's very interesting. You get so clear. You get, there's no might. There's like flashes that went through my head. Flashes of a woman I love dearly that's, that's now with me. Uh, flashes of like, um, flashes of like things, flashes of, like this is something in the back of my head going, what a shitty, messy way to go. 
and then flashes of just fear and horror looking. And then, and then I remember the, the anesthesiologist put the mask, oxygen mask on my, and I ripped it off because I just had to get it out. And I looked at her and I like said, look, and she's wearing these glasses and these dangling gold pearling earrings. And she's got this beautiful tan skin. And I'm like, look, I'm scared. I'm scared. And that's all I could say. And she, and she held my hand. And it was so soft. And something we said, okay. And literally, and I'm starting to like, this is before the anesthesia is running into me. And something we goes, and she's, now she's starting to put the mask back on. I thought, okay, if this is it, something in you almost at that point stops fighting. And like, if this is it, this is it. This is the last thing I'll have seen. It's shitty, but it's the last thing I've seen. I literally remember doing that and then kind of like laying back on the table. It's almost like, and I felt like I fell backwards into like a dark ocean. And, and then they put the mask on me and then I disappeared. So, so this is before the anesthesiology, you were feeling like falling, you're falling back into this ocean. Yeah. Cause you were also partially blacking out from the partially loss of blood. Partially blacking out from the loss of blood. Yeah. And shock. And shock. I mean, and, I was in full on shock. No. And I feel like, so, so. I hear what you're saying, like you have a couple of choices when you're in that moment that's so critical to to life or death. You have the choice of like saying, you know, okay, you know, I'm I'm going to surrender to this and whatever it is you were thinking, you know, to kind of get through it. Was there any moment, but the other choice is feeling sad. Like, was there any mo- uh, flash moments of sadness? Like, I wish... I the could- flash moments were the uh, interesting, of, honestly, of the woman I love. And I'm now with her, and I still love her deeply. And just think, I have flashes of her. And just the sadness of just going this way. And there was like a brief, not sadness, but it was like, what a shitty way to go. And we, we're all, like a friend of mine said yesterday, we're all living on a knife's edge. You know, I just happened to like experience it. And but first, as a primal, this it's interesting. Your your neurocortex, the thinking part, there is no thinking. You're literally so clear. It's not like doing any psychedelic or whatever, where you still feel like you have a choice. You are so clear, and it's not. And there's a primal part, a brainstem part of you, like like an animal part of you that's fighting, like fighting desperately, like this blood's coming out of you. That stop it, stop it, just stop it, and. And then eventually to realize, and then the deeper party comes in and realizes I can't, and I have to let go. I have to surrender. And literally, it was, it was the ultimate. Like I, I wrote about this later. Waking up, like shit, I got to live the ultimate surrender, where I had to let go. And, and so similar, um, so so we mentioned this this possibility of feeling like this this feeling of surrender. We mentioned, you know this feeling of sadness, which you had a, uh, a flash of. This is a weird question, but is there, was there ever a feeling of relief? Because I think in my imagination, I have no idea how I'd react. Obviously, like you're describing it, it's so intense. It's moment by moment. It's something that's very unique to that moment. There's no and, thinking happening. Right. But was there ever a moment where you feel uh, relief? Like, I feel like I would feel no. slight relief. No, like, I, I, this you know, seems like a fine way to die, actually. It's a great po- question because there's times in my life where I actually have wanted to die. You know, yeah, but I'm not even in a suicidal it. way. It's yeah. just like, if this is it, fine. Like, this is not no, so bad. No, <laughs> but it wasn't relief. It was more like a complete uh, giving up. You have, it, uh, not giving up, but a giving in, like a surrender. Because at this point, 
you realize you literally have zero choice. The moment of realizing, not knowing, the knowing it, I have, here you are, blood spurting out of you and this image of mayhem around you and then just come to terms with, and it's not like you're thinking this through. It's literally like you just know, it's, it's a knowing after knowing after knowing after knowing. It's like, this is the last, this is very much likely the last thing I'll see. But I think this is to your credit, like, um, you know, a lot of people could be panicking right up until that moment of falling into the ocean, as you put it. Um, or you chose this surrender route. And I wonder if that's something, you know, you, for instance, we just recently spoke about, you were in Nepal meditating with these intense Buddhist monks and you've, you've done a lot of work on practicing surrendering. And I wonder if that, that surrender muscle was built up enough that that was the path you chose in those moments as opposed to a panic path Honestly, or a fear I think, path. I think it's actually a natural thing. You can't train for it. Hmm. You know, I've done all the psychedelics. I've done all that. People talk about surrendering into ego death and all that. I've experienced all of it. When you're in the real thing, even when you're doing the ego death psychedelics, some part of you know that you're still here. This is here. Your body knows. There's... As, you, as you're feeling like the light, your blood is life force. You're feeling the blood flow, uh, your life force. You're literally you're feeling it. You're feeling it drain out of you. It's like, like in the movies, you know, when the, when they shut down the computer, it goes. You're feeling that inside start to happen. You feel it. Like I mean, I'm making it. I didn't have the sound effect, but you felt. I felt it. And I think the surrender. You know, like when I did trauma research, and I used to watch so many people die, and I, you know, when my father died, and I've always thought about that. And I think that's a very human thing. That is the ultimate surrender where people are close to death or to death, that the surrender happens. That's, that's a fundamental human experience. Do you think that's, um, and you mentioned, you, my guess is your answer to this is no, but do you think that feeling of surrender, which is which figuratively is kind of important in many areas of life, like what's really happening is at this point, you have no control over what's going to happen next. So there's no sense in the body or the mind paying any attention to it at all because you have no yeah. control over it. Do you think that is something you can practice to even a fraction of that feeling again? I don't want to. <laughs> but I mean, it's a good thing to to kind of surrender to the things you can't control and focus on the things you can. Yeah, I mean, I kind of live and, that and way. And too often days. in life, yeah, we yeah, try yeah. to control things yeah. we can't control. I mean, I kind of live that way these days, but this level, I don't think one can practice for it. You really can't. It's just, it's, uh, we're all going to hit it someday. So, so, so you go under, I assume you don't remember any part of the surgery at all, do you? Thank God, no. But I do remember like falling backwards, actually literally like leaning back because I'd been like sitting up a little, just almost like if I could have grabbed the anesthesiologist or whatever when I told her. I just had to get it out. I don't know why. Something in me had to get out what I was feeling. And literally it was, I was like, I'm scared. And it's like you needed, it was, you needed that one more, level of comfort i let that level of i don't not comfort because i don't know what she was going to do right they were trying to put me out and just it's i had to express it i don't know that was the primal thing it's almost like you're like something you still want if this is a lot because if you express it you're still alive that there's an aliveness in expressing it it was like that that fighting to be alive and then the aliveness the only way i could be alive was just to express what i was feeling and i didn't have much energy so all i could get out was that word and what she did was when she held my hand and it was, I just remember the softness of it and something in that just was like, okay, okay, 
you know, like then all of a sudden everything gets quieter and you're watching this mayhem around you like, that's just could be the very last thing I experienced, the very last image of this life, you know, and then leaning back. And, and, then, and you felt a sense of... No, feel- no peace, none of that. It was more like that you quiet down and you fall backwards. It's almost like literally like you're falling backwards into an abyss like that, like an ocean in a dark ocean and you're just falling. And this is before the anesthesia. So it's not anesthesia. And then they, then they put the mask on me. And then after that, you know, um, next thing I know, I'm, I'm waking up again for the second time now in, in 24 hours in a recovery room. But this time I have a couple of nurses there, doctors right there. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so, so, okay, you wake up and do, do they, I mean, you're obviously probably in some confusion because you don't even know really what happened the first time. No, I remember, I remember. I woke up remembering. But but you remember what happened, but you don't know why it happened because it was happening so fast. You don't know why there was a geyser. I didn't care why. Mm -hmm. In those moments, you don't care why. You don't care what could have been. You just care about what is. I I mean, I I talked to the doctor attending. I was like, look, you guys are amazing. You saved my life. Uh, I'm never going to complain or anything. I'm just going to tell you about one thing about that nurse who didn't pay attention to me, and you should know that. Right, and this is not about complaining, by the way. Right. I'm not saying, oh, I'm trying to figure out a way to sue the hospital. This is more about just understanding. Like, it's not, you know, information is power, so it's useful to... No, I agree. You know, there's no better advocate. The nurse is not going to be your advocate. You know, like, um, you're right. I should have had an advocate. Maybe... But, but and even for yourself, so you wake up, and what's the, what's the first thing you want to hear? First thing I want to hear is they fixed it. You're, and and, you're, what, and what did they say? I asked him. He's like, "Yeah, we went around. We did the the other procedure, and like, your everything's working great." Because my thing was, I'd hate to wake up and have gone through all of this and, and still have still still have the same issue I came in with. That would be a freaking that would I would be pissed. So my my thing was like, literally, when I talked to the other surgeon, I was like, "Look, I don't care what you do, but fix this." But 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 did you at this point? You're probably a little bit skeptical. No, that that because like why trust them now when no I do I really like the surgeons uh-huh. they're very they were good like these things happen but the surgeons um they they cared so they did, but did you say though did you triple check quadruple no, check no I, but I'm sure they did after that experience and and did you say when will I know that this won't happen again the bursting of an artery no no I didn't ask that um, but they were you know, pretty I'm, confident I, was, I wasn't thinking that way I was thinking like first did it work second I was in an incredible amount of pain <laughs> like at that moment waking up yeah so i was in also severe narcotics i mean they were like every i mean i got to experience hospital narcotics on an interesting level what, like was it morphine or fentanyl or uh, uh dilated oxycontin like every hour and a half all these mixtures like um they they could have given me the pain pump the only problem with the pain pump was it only lasts a couple of minutes or like a short acting and so if you fall asleep you wake up because of the pain, right? So that's the, they don't give, they, they hold back on painkillers even for people in extreme pain in hospitals. And so the best, so the, the way the surgeon explained to me is like, you have these choices. He actually said, you have choices of the kind of painkillers we can give you. Uh, you will have better pain, like we'll give you, we can give you morphine directly with that pain pump, but it keeps running out, keeps running out. So you're going to have to keep on waking up in pain and then pressing a button, waking up in pain, pressing the button. I was like, I don't want to feel pain. I don't want to wake up in pain. Just give me the other one. It'll be less effective, but it'll be throughout. And 
Like, a, and then I slept a lot. So yeah. when you were sleeping, because you weren't taking the maximum painkiller, were you having dreams about pain? I don't remember. I was having interesting dreams, um, but I don't remember dreams about pain. But I was, I was, I just remember a lot of pain and being uncomfortable. I mean, look, it was four days before I could get out of this, out of the hospital bed, and it just walk like three steps like what, what what why four days like because everything you've had worked. your abdomen slashed open you know you're like multiple times and the second time like slashed open right because you probably couldn't have just gone home and taken care of yourself you probably needed the the help oh i couldn't beyond that i couldn't leave the hospital i mean i i was on on uh massive um ivs of this and that and my i my i'd lost so much blood you know here's a very interesting thing I saw the surgeon, after I did, got released from the hospital, a week later, I went to see the surgeon for a follow-up. And I said to her, you know, like two days ago, I woke up and I can't quantify it, but I'm starting to feel like a certain sense of vitality. And she's like, oh yeah, it's because you lost so much blood. It's like your body's making red blood cells again. It's kind of interesting. Your sense of energy is actually biology. Yeah. So actually, so let's think about that for a second. So you lost all the old dirty blood in you. I thought it was and, good blood. And now you're like, you're getting this transfusion of new, like, well, I, I don't young think they, baby zombie the, the blood. Peter <laughs> well, I, I don't know if they give you as much blood as they give you plasma. Mm-hmm. I don't think they give you, I don't think they give you a lot of red blood cells. They give you plasma. Um, your body has to, uh, because... The plasma is like the precursor to... It's the fluid inside that, you know, that's with the red blood cells taken out. I think uh, they give you some, I think there's a thing to it because... Then I was in the hospital because it was so anemic because I lost so much blood. Like by the time I left, I was still severely anemic. Um, and it's like my body's not breaking about blood cells. I'm starting to get more energy. Just the anemia is getting better. Uh, I have to take supplements for it. But but is this, could this be a procedure for vitality? Like, take uh, hey, I'm going, to, I'm checking into this clinic, take out like all my blood, put in some new ones. And so I could feel that vitality. Oh, well, look, I mean, isn't that what they do in, uh, in Tour de France with doping, their blood doping? They take out their own blood and, you know, months before. And they like, it was a, they used to blood dope, I think, in cyclists, you know, but it does work. Yeah, I guess because the new blood has, has more oxygen. No, or just your own blood, you know, extra blood cells. You know, you, you can have more oxygen. So, so yeah, so why isn't that something that's more commonly done? It doesn't seem like it's unhealthy. Um, hospitals are not about being healthy. Mm-hmm. That's one thing I learned. You know, they're about X and Y. Healthy is something different. You that's know, healthy is optimizing. Optimizing is something different. So would you try to explore doing this part, at least like finding a new way to increase vitality every now and then? Um, look, I'm eating, I'm just letting my body rebuild itself. I'm eating really healthy. I'm giving you the building blocks. And it's amazing how your body recovers. Like every day I wake up, I f- the, the first five minutes are hard because I wake up and I'm like drenched in sweat from the pain because I wean myself off the painkillers. Um, and literally I'm like drenched in sweat from like I was in pain during the night. I kept on waking up. Um, but then five minutes later, I'm okay. And I am better than I was the day before. How often in our lives do we go through where every day you wake up, you feel better than the day before? I'm feeling think, that right now. Like, like, does it change your perspective? Like, so, like when I walk around during the day, on an average day, I'm thinking about the 50 or so situations I have to make decisions on, mm-hmm. the, the people who make me happy, the people who annoy me, the people who are like, you know, going over a conversation, they, oh, I should have said this, I should have said that. Do you feel like a little bit 
lighter in the head psychologically because now you're so you've been so focused on this life or death issue that also was incredibly painful. It's interesting. Um, I was telling my brother about this, and you know, I was like, you know, my state of mind through this whole thing, even when I was in the hospital, like hospital bed, like I spent a week, like basically lying in a hospital bed, writhing in pain, you know. Um, and for you know how active I am, for someone who's that active, to just be lying in a hospital bed, like hooked up to everything, I had lines in my arteries because to monitor my blood pressure. I mean, that's like as far as, you know, that real-time data, right? But you got to go deep. So you write in my artery. Um, and, and, but yet my, my state of mind, except for like those moments of horror, right? And then sometimes like um, when you just keep on getting interrupted a lot and some of the nurses are, that some nurses were great, some of the nurses were downright rude, you know? They're, they're you, human beings taking care of you. And, and uh, uh, but most of all, my my state of mind was really good. If we were like to actually like, if we were on a scale of happiness, I was like seven to eight because uh, I was just like in a state of just like kind of like. But I've been that way since I came back from Nepal, like with the work I did, and also the work I do with my low myself practice, which I've been doing very intensely. It was a sense of just just gratitude. I've been like walking around in that. I've been in that, even in the hospital in that in that. When I had every excuse to feel shitty, right? I can't even walk. But walking three steps is like, uh, you feel like you have won that day when you walk three steps, right? I felt gratitude for walking those three steps. Right, so... So, so my state of mind actually is really... I was telling my brother, I was like, look, if I can go through something like this, which is a true test in every sense, and still throughout it all feel this way, that tells you my mind's pretty solid. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. but also I'm wondering if because the magnifying glass... The, you know, the lens through which we view our external lives, you're, you, it's like you had a magnifying glass focused on just this one situation. So it almost crowds out every other situation in your life. Did you feel like it kind of put into a, a perspective many other situations in your life because it was almost like you were arm's length from those situations because of the how focused no, you were on this? No, because when you're lying around a hospital, no matter how much painkillers you're on and how much pain you're in, you still think about your life. You know, your mind is still the mind. But in the end, it's almost like an underlying thing, about which, um, which is the state of mind. And you know, it's very interesting to realize the state of mind is not related to what's happening. State of mind, you know, literally horror, die, almost dying, you know, spraying blood everywhere. That's still not what your state of mind has to be affected by. Your state of mind is a different thing. That's been a very interesting lesson. But I, I don't understand. So it still seems like, yes, you're, so you're focused on that you go, go through this life-death experience. It seems like that would put other experiences in perspective. So it's other things that maybe you would have I'll tell you what, like, I, I've, I've actually become more and more like uh, less tolerant of bullshit. Uh, with this, I have zero tolerance for bullshit. <laughs> right, because <laughs> uh, uh, this, this is what I'm trying to, yeah. or, or what I'm maybe getting at is sort of nuance is removed from from the way you analyze a situation in life because this was life or death. There was no nuance. Well, look, I, before the podcast started, you and I were talking about a business decision I made after I came back from surgery a week later talking to see of a company I worked with. And like, I was so clear to him in the phone call afterwards that he literally was speechless and all he was saying was, uh, 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 but he didn't know how to respond because you can't respond to someone when they're that clear and that tr full of truth. Right, because yeah. I would think a lot of times when you're interacting with people, 
people, when particularly in a, let's say a business negotiation or something, you're so focused on nuance. Like, yeah, and, yeah. and if I say this, is he going to react like this and how it will affect me this and this? You, and then you come out of this, you just don't, excuse right. my language, you just don't fucking care. And so what I wonder is, can that state be recreated without that magnifying glass being so thrust on you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it requires being in a state of, well, fundamentally, one, working on yourself, and second, living in a place of just being true in your communication, being true in, in your thoughts and your communication, which is a practice. So let's say like a year from now, this is all past, you know, you're all better, everything's great, and you start getting enmeshed in life's situations again, whatever they may be. What do you think is an exercise or a practice to kind of remind yourself of that state of truth that's that's not as nuanced and not as not as brought down by nuance? I'm using the word nuance because it's both positive and negative. Yeah. Sometimes it's good to analyze the situation, yeah. but sometimes it's good, like you say, or often my guess is it's better to just speak that plain truth. You know what's interesting? Because life is short, you know it doesn't matter. In, you know what's interesting with this also is like if I... I, I People don't get to me anymore. Like if you know, like if someone irks me, or I think someone doesn't mean me well, actually internally my mind goes, "Huh, okay, that's cool," and it's like because I just don't care. So right, so okay, so like let's say I right now uh-huh. care about some situations, you know, or let's say my brain is enmeshed in different situations and, and outcomes. What? And I'm not going to submit myself to a life or death situation. I don't recommend it. Nor are the listeners. <laughs> what's a what's a practice you would suggest to kind of sh- should one visualize? No, no, no. you know the practice really is just being honest with yourself about your own internal motivations, your own internal thoughts. We, you know, there's so much of our thoughts are bullshit. So much of our thoughts are actually just old loops and just bullshit and fears and this. What's an example of bullshit thought? Um, for example, the 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 CEO that I spoke with, right? The negotiation that he called me, he wanted me to do some work. And it was just like, normally I would have like, I'm a nice guy, or right? I'm a good guy. Uh, sometimes I'm nice. Um, I would have at least like been nice, but I didn't I didn't even think of it as being nice or not nice. It was just clear. Like, look, this is what I, this is what, basically what I'm standing for. So, so I think it's like not, I think what you're saying is like, don't, don't dance around issues because you're worried about, 65 possible outcomes to your words try to try to double check triple check you're saying the absolute clearest truth that that makes you feel this is right yeah you do that you feel zero um any negative emotions about it no matter how about the outcome you know you're true and but you have to be careful because we we have so many layers of bullshit inside that sometimes it does take like a traumatic experience to like wake that up I don't know. Yeah, yeah. So I wonder how do you how I don't think I, you I can go you. take think... a ten day course to do this. Honestly, James, um, I think it's more of a practice of of being true to our first true to our honest with ourselves. Because um, I had to be. I mean, like, look, as I was in that OR and the blood spurting out, the things that came to me were very honest, were very true. The images of like, I, there was no. Uh, nuanced thought. It was just clear, 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 clear. Um, I honestly don't know if we can live like that all the time. I mean, unless you're going to be a monk, which none of us want to. Um, but it's good to know that 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 
state exists and we can access it, but it would be a mental discipline. It's not something we can just take an online course or read a book and do it. Mm. You know, it's, I imagine like a meditation probably is a way of practicing for those for those moments. Maybe meditation is, you know, most of the time, 90% of the time meditation, you're just seeing your mind being a monkey, mm. right? I think it's more of a, like as a writer, I have a commitment to the truth. Everything I write has to be, has to have the, not the, not the details of what happened, but the actual emotional truth, the actual truth behind the experience. Um, and this is more now doing it in your thoughts. It's more of a commitment to self, that I'm going to be true to myself. Not to myself, but true in my thoughts. Because there is no bullshit you have inside with yourself after this. I feel very little bullshit. I'll, I'll be very honest about that. And I, I feel a lot of love for everyone. Even people who I feel like have not been good to me, whatever, I'll, but I think of them, like, oh, I wish you the very best. I, it's really interesting. It's like, you kind of let, I've, I just do. I just walk around wishing people, if I see someone on the street that doesn't seem to be doing well, I just like look at them and I really genuinely do wish them the best. I just walk around, I'm walking around just feeling that way these days. Hmm. It's so interesting, this, this fundamental inner state of just love for all. It reminds me of something someone once told me about the Dalai Lama that interacting with him, this person telling me, she said, uh, it always feels like he treats everyone as if that person was his daughter. So whether it's a man or a woman or a girl or a child, because there's a certain kind of, you know, love for a child and love for a daughter. And, you know, it's a very, like you say, it's a very sweet sort of emotion. And it kind of like very quickly overrides, you know, the usual enmeshment of of emotions you have with people. Yeah, I mean, he's done a level of training, a level of work. You know, um, I don't, I don't have that. You know, but it's something different. But it's it's a clear, it's a more of a clarity. Well, and how are you feeling right now, today? Uh, like every day, I week. woke up today. Um, like this was on October the second surgery of October tw- of October second. Today's what the twenty third. Yeah. So what? 21 yeah. days ago, yeah, wow. I, I basically bled to death. Uh, I'm doing pretty good considering. Um, every day, like the doctor said, I saw this one of the surgeons and he said, okay, because he knows just how important fitness is to me. He's like, okay, you're allowed to walk into a gym. You're allowed to sit on a bench. You're allowed to, at the most, pick up a five pound weight. And which is actually advice to give to anyone if you're a 10 year old to a 70 year old having surgery. I'm not special that. Uh, and I, so I did. I went to the gym, I sat on a bench. And normally plates, I would just like these 45 plates on a bar. I, you know, normally I would just be grabbing them with just fingers and pulling them off and stacking them. I had to, I, you know, less than humility, ask, I went to a guy who's a trainer, like, hey, do me a favor. I just had surgery. Could you take those off for me? And then just doing five pounds just to move the body. And it's like a very interesting lesson in humility and patience, but also knowing like, look, today might be five pounds. Next week will be 10 pounds. Week after that, 15 pounds. Week after that, 20 pounds. I'm going to get better and Can better and better. I have to be very careful with everything because um, I'm not out of the woods yet. I can't fly. Uh, that's actually downright dangerous for me right now. Can you take a walk? I'm starting to take walks. I, my longest walk was last night. Uh, walks are good. You know, that also keeps the circulation flowing. So every day I'm getting better. I hope to, I'm looking forward to like waking up a morning and not have been a night of sweaty pain, you know. Um, and I'm also very lucky because I have things I'm working on, you know, like... Um, I could be uh, still on significant narcotics, but I have a book coming out, and I have book proofs to review. Yeah, I'm so holding like, it right now. It's, uh, love your, it's it's 
the new expanded, much changed edition of Love Yourself Like Your Life Depends On It. Uh, the cover is amazing. You can find that on Amazon, uh, Kamal Ravikant. I'm going to order, I encourage everybody to pre-order this because I think it's going to sell really well. It looks it looks great. Particularly, I like the acknowledgments. Um, <laughs> I mean, this this book is going to, if the first version changed life, this book is really remarkably going to change lives. Well, Kamal, I always love everything you write and your first book, Love Yourself, Like Your Life Depends On It. I loved it. Now, that was only like 10 pages. <laughs> this is 240 pages or whatever. So I'm so excited. I'm going to spend this weekend reading it. And uh, I'm glad you didn't die. That would have been a drag. Well, I really don't like going to funerals. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, like you and I were talking. I was like, yeah, man. I mean, this right now, you could be just hanging my brother in New York trying to figure out what to do with my body. You know? Yeah, or I could just put a tear emoji on your Facebook page. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, all right. Cam, I'm too distraught to go to the funeral. But, uh, but no, I'm glad. I'm glad you're here and it worked out and you're I'm on glad, the podcast. I'm glad to be here. Talking I have, about it. Um, I have things to do. I have some great work to put out to the world. And and you'll come back in a... When's this book coming out? Officially? January 7th. So you'll come back in a month and we'll talk about the book. Yeah. You know, thank you for having me and sharing this experience. It's it's uh, it's such a knife edge experience that there's like nuggets in it that uh, that I hope that whoever's listening, you know, found that they can apply. Your nugget of being of having an advocate is a brilliant one. I wouldn't have thought of that. I think I think there's that. And I think this notion of... Surrender to what you can't control. There's something there. There's something that, that, you know, it's a, it's a, it's like a surgery all the way through to the to the heart in terms of getting rid of all the the stuff that doesn't matter. And I think there's something there's something there worth thinking about. Yeah, because I'm even the flashes of memory, the flashes of having while I was in the OR, giving into the surrender. There, there's someone I wish would you know would in my life but who isn't and but there was nothing I could do so I had to just surrender you know there was nothing I could do I was literally dying and that is that's so important for people to move forward because those hanging on to something you can't control is the only thing that will ever hold you back yeah I hold back from dying <laughs> maybe yeah <laughs> there was nothing you could do you were forced to, there's to surrender there's nothing I could do I had to surrender to the Everything. And most of the time we don't realize we're forced to surrender, but in fact, probably we always are forced, but we don't realize it. Then sometimes, you then you were not. forced. I mean, sometimes you have choice. Um it's never Cho- choice, uh, but the choice is not useful. If you try to control what you can't control, it's not really a useful choice. Fair enough. But um anyway, Kamal, thanks for so much for for coming on for more reasons than one, and we'll see you back on here in a month. Yeah, I hope this was helpful to whoever listens. It was helpful to me. Thanks, James. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost.